I'm my dad's first kid, and when he realized he that my mom was pregnant with a girl, he wanted me to have a life that he really did not have, and to him that meant a life of better fortune. And there's a phrase in Cantonese that he went by, we often say it to each other in, in Chinese during New Year's and stuff, and means big fortune, Dai Lei means big luck. And he thought that in this life, it would be more important to have luck rather than fortune. So he took this part, Dai Lei, and went to his friends asking, the ones who could speak English, asking them what he could name his kid, because he's about to have an American kid, so he didn't want to give his American kid a Chinese name, but he wanted it to embody a Chinese concept. So one of his friends suggested a transliteration of Dai Lei to Dolly. And that's how I end up with Dolly. His friend said, this is an American name. There's a famous singer named Dolly, and it kind of sounds like Dai Lei. So Dolly actually just means a lot of luck and a lot of fortune, which is what my dad wanted for me. Dolly Lee is a first-generation immigrant and her grandfather was actually persecuted during the Cultural Revolution for writing to his brother who was here in America. And now just two generations later, Dolly is a visual journalist at AJ+, professionally practicing free speech. So this story is amazing because in two generations, you go from someone persecuted who had no defense, who had no journalism to say, this isn't the true story, to her now creating content that's put out to millions of people across the world on all of these digital platforms. Is this where you'd like to be in your life? And is this what you'd like to be doing? How'd you get here? And where do you hope to go in the future? Most importantly, how are things right now? And what have you learned along the way? This is Bill Ehrlich. Is now a good time? I'm from New York. Grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, born in Manhattan. I don't like to tell people that. But I am from Brooklyn, raised in Brooklyn. Went to high school in Brooklyn and did not leave in New York until college. I grew up mostly in the southern part of Brooklyn. My family first lived in this neighborhood that was really near Coney Island. So Coney Island was super accessible to us, which is awesome. Um, but the neighborhood wasn't the best. It was lots of, there was a lot of petty crime. Um, my dad got beat up pretty often coming home from work and he'd get robbed. It was like an annual thing. What type of work did he do? Um, this is very, very specific. So when you produce, when you mass produce fashion, when you mass produce clothing, you have to have consistency, right? Like consistency in the collar, consist consistency in terms of, you know, like the band that you have across like the, the side of your shirt or something, right? And if you're going to produce like 100,000 pieces of this garment, you need to make sure that everything looks the same. So he creates these parts for sewing machines called attachments, where it's this, it's metal smithing. He creates a custom part where you put a fabric in on one side and then the output is some type of folded up fabric. 
where you'll say, let's say someone wants to make um, a bikini, mm-hmm. you know, and the straps, if you make 100,000 of them, all the straps have to be a quarter inch uh, wide all the way through. So you don't want people to be like folding that over and over again. That makes the process super slow. So he makes the attachment piece where you put the fabric in and the output is this folded fabric that's like a quarter of an inch. He makes that metal part. So he's like a very, very specialized metalsmith. How do you learn how to do that? When he first came to the United States, my dad still doesn't speak English. Uh, so he didn't speak English and he needed a job that involves more handiwork. My dad is also an artist and he is very visual, um, likes to use his hands. And the first gig that he took on, well, this wasn't his first gig. He went through a few different jobs as a new immigrant, but the one that stuck more with him, and I think it's because it's kind of artsy or like sculpting in some way, these attachments aren't that big. They're like the size of a sandwich, essentially. And he learned from this engineer, this Russian engineer named Ivan, who also didn't speak English, but did the same line of work. Um, And Ivan showed him how to make these parts. And after that, my dad joined this company called the New York Sewing Company, which went out of business after 9-11. But he worked with the New York Sewing Company for a long time making attachments. And he also freelanced on the side, outside of the company, so he could make some extra money. Um, And in that time, in the best of his entrepreneurial days, his clients for attachments range all the way from like Canada down to Florida. Wow. Where, where was he from? My dad. Uh, my dad's from the southern province of China known as, uh, well, he's from Siuquan, the city, the city in Guangdong uh, in China. So my parents, neither of them have first relatives in this country. They're, they have cousins. No, my dad has cousins. My mom doesn't have relatives in this country. But when my dad first moved to the United States, his uncle, my granduncle, he had already gone to the U.S. for a few years. And he said to his brothers, including my grandfather, he said, everyone should have a representative in in the United States. And since my dad was the oldest, my grandfather said, you go. You go to the United States. So my dad went. And so all of his siblings are still in China. Wow. Also, to just backtrack a little bit, it's wild. Your dad, who didn't speak English and only spoke Chinese, was taught by a guy named Ivan, who only spoke Russian, yes. how to make this very specific attachment piece for sewing machines. For mass produ- production of fashion, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's only like a New York thing. Yeah. <laughs> my brother is actually named after this engineer, my brother Ivan. Oh, no way. Yeah. That kind I, I of brings it full circle. I think it's really dope. I think it's yeah, mad dope. That's so cool. Yeah. I love that. My dad's a clever man. He's been clever with the names. And he's obviously very smart because all of, all of the things you have said are just very impressive. Yeah. I, I find him to be a terribly impressive man. I think that, you know, he he's resigned himself to a certain fated life. My dad was born on May 8th, 1958. This year he just turned 58. And in Chinese, at least in Cantonese, the number eight means it stands for fortune, but the, the number five is a negator. So he's got this combination of 5858, five, eight, which is like no money, no money. That's essentially what it means. So he's accepted that that's his fate. 
and he so strongly believes that with his next generation, you know, like me and my brother, are gonna have a better life than he will. Brooklyn, real Brooklyn. Oh yes. And what was growing up in Brooklyn like? Because this is a very, this is a real New York experience. Yes. Your dad is making these attachments for like sewing machines in the garment district. Yes. So, I have this really, I have a few really distinct memories from growing up in right by Coney Island. One of them is walking to Sea Town with my grandfather when he was living with us for a few years in Brooklyn. And Seatown, it's a it's a New York supermarket, and you pretty much only find it in like the poorest neighborhoods. And I never, I didn't realize that until later on in life. Um, but we would always go to Seatown, and we would, my grandfather would let me and my brother buy candy. He was the only person who allowed us to buy candy. I always thought it was so badass. My grandfather would just take us around walking in this neighborhood in Brooklyn that was pretty shady. Um, and he was, he did not give a fuck. He just didn't care. He didn't care if other people were looking at him. No one ever mugged him. I think it part, partially because he was such a big guy. Um, so I have like really distinct memories just like walking in that neighborhood. There was one time, so the place we lived in, we rented at that time. My parents rented and my entire family, we slept in one bedroom, my brother, me, my dad, my mom. And my brother and I had a bunk bed, and my parents had the bed next to the bunk bed. Um, it's a very small space, but that was what we could make happen. And, you know, we were kids, it didn't really matter. Um, so my parents didn't make a lot of money. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad worked at the New York Sewing Company. Um, without education and without the ability to speak English, you can only get so far. So our neighborhood was fine, and it was... We weren't, we were one of the few Asian families that lived there, which is okay. Um, I think that that made, you know, like growing up, it made diversity seem a lot more normal. You know, when you, when you realize that, oh, I'm just one of a few and, you know, I'm not going to be the majority nor really the minority. You don't even think about it in that way when you grow up in a super diverse neighborhood. But I do have this one distinct memory of going through the park that was right by my parents' house. Um, and the park was part of the projects. We lived just down the block from uh, the projects, the Marlboro projects. And me and my brother were riding our bikes and my, our mom was behind us. And these kids started throwing rocks at us. They were throwing rocks at me and my brother and my mom. And my mom said, you guys like bike off, go bike off and I'll catch up. And I remember feeling such a distinct sense of fear and also just, I was completely frightened for my mom. Like what, 
I mean, nothing bad happened to her. I think, honestly, it was just a bunch of rowdy teenagers who saw people coming through with bikes. But in that moment, it was like the first time I wondered to myself if people noticed that we were Chinese and didn't like that and targeted us in some way for, you know, like being in the neighborhood. And it wasn't the first time. I mean, other Chinese people had moved into that neighborhood and gotten really beat up and they left. There were there are more Chinese neighborhoods in Brooklyn, but we weren't in one of them. And, you know, I think that part of it was, I don't think that's like a, a, the New York that exists anymore right now. I feel like New York is so much safer and more racially diverse and conscious of what's going on that you don't necessarily have these situations where people are getting targeted in their neighborhoods for just being themselves, you know? And I mean, luckily we also have things like social media and when things like that happen, people find out, you know, you will pay the price of racially targeting someone. And that nece- that wasn't necessarily the case back then growing up. My, my own family has felt it. My dad gets the brunt of it. And I know other Chinese people who have moved into that neighborhood have also felt it. But the New York now is very different, you know, and it's like, you go back and forth, right? Gentrification, yes, it's such a dirty word, but at the same time, you know, are we also being, like, culturally, has New York moved to a place where it seems more aware? Maybe. I mean, I hope so. What was the makeup of the neighborhood? So you were a min- you were in the minority being Chinese. Yeah. Um, I would, the neighborhood was, the neighborhood was mostly black Latino. Um, there were some like older white folks who were mostly Italian Americans. I grew up with a lot of Italian Americans. My family eventually moved to Bensonhurst, which is an old Italian American neighborhood. Um, that's where they live now. So you went to high school and did you go to public school in Brooklyn? Yeah, I've got, I went to public school the whole way through until college. So I went to Brooklyn Tech. And wh- what were you into growing up? Did anything like strike a chord with you? Any like natural abilities? Any subject that like really was your thing? Um, I was always really into art, drawing, making things. Um, my dad taught me how to draw. And really early on, I was always drawing. And I went to a junior, a public junior high school, but we had to choose like a they called them talents. Um, I was an art talent, so I was lucky to be in a public school situation where I had art teachers who wanted to foster my interests, which is rare, you know? It's rare for public schools to not, it's rare for them to fund art education. So I went to Mark Twain where I studied art at an earlier age um, and had constant art in my life and art teachers in my life. I was really determined to go to an art high school at that time. And LaGuardia School of Fine Arts, which has produced the likes of Nicki Minaj and Alicia Keys, also is a visual arts school. So I did get into LaGuardia, you have to test in, uh, also a public school. But my dad said to me, my dad, the one who taught me to draw said, art is not a profession. There's no way to make money, and it's the school is too far, which is true. All of those things were kind of true, 
Um, the school was like an hour and a half away from my parents' house and I would be commuting three hours a day, which is insane. So I didn't end up going. Um, and I ended up going to Brooklyn Tech and I chose Brooklyn Tech because they also had majors that you could choose at the end of sophomore year, very similar to college. And the major that really interested me was industrial design. So I ended up studying industrial design in high school. It sounds like you went to like really good schools that had these programs to kind of hone you in. Yeah, I can't I can't tell if like they chose me or I chose them. You know, it's it must be a little bit of give and take in the universe. Uh, but I feel lucky that I was able to have these connections with like art and design teachers. Mm -hmm. To this day, I'm still in touch with my art teachers from like junior high school into high school. And it so happens that all of my art teachers happen to be like really strong female figures. So that's been really, really nice as well to, you know, every time that I felt like I've been stuck in a rut in terms of my career or even like my personal life, I've been able to like get in touch with them and, you know, be reminded of where I started and have them in my life as mentors. So yeah, it's awesome to have had so much art development, you know, at an early age. Um, but even then, I mean, in high school, I've by the time we had to go to college or start thinking about college, though I had studied art for so long and thought I was gonna go to an art school, I had a complete freak out. And I ended up in the NYU Stern School of Business. For <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? I think the words that my, like what my dad said to me before LaGuardia about art not being a career or a profession really, I, I panicked, I panicked, and I have immigrant child guilt where I feel obligated to bring back something that my parents, I feel like I owe to my family in some way, and so much of that can be financial, right? It's, you, you see your family work hard, you watch your parents work hard to get you to where you need to be, and you want to give back to them, it's, it's a natural feeling, and the easiest way to give back is monetary, um, so all of the other Asian kids were going to go into business or finance or they already had their eyes on Goldman Sachs or whatever, whatever. And I just freaked out and thought, well, that, that must be my path too. Otherwise I'm going to be a failure to the Chinese community. So I went to NYU Stern for a whole year. I think afterwards there is no way any 17, 18 year old should decide that they should go into finance. I just, I just really don't see that as like a healthy way to de de develop a young mind. But I knew I had to leave. It was just, it was the wrong decision. But it's good that you tried it. Right. It's yeah. like some respect to your parents. Like, hey, I tried it. Like, you know, yeah. like if this worked out, if this worked out great, but yeah. like not happening. To their credit, though, they didn't push me in any direction. They did not say, oh, you must go to a school that's going to guarantee you a certain salary afterwards. You must do something that will guarantee you a certain type of job. You know, they expressed natural concerns as any parent would, like, oh, we hope that you will have a happy, healthy life where you don't struggle the way we did. But that could take many forms, right? Um, the easiest way out at that time was to go to business school. Uh, so I... I'm glad I tried it. I don't regret it. I don't I don't really recommend NYU to native New Yorkers. I think that that was another thing that really plagued me. I felt like I was in this doing the same routine, yet all of my friends had left. Mm 
and were in this like college world where they were wearing like pajamas and sitting by fireplaces and I don't know what. You were still grinding <laughs> in New York. <laughs> well, I was going to school and because NYU is so expensive, I also was working at the same time. I worked at the American Red Cross um, for, I volunteered there in high school and then I asked for a job after that. So I could pay for college. And I honestly worked so much that I was working more than I was in school. So other than going to class, I was like, class, work, class. Then I was just too tired to do anything outside of that. I just didn't really have a life and it wasn't sustainable. So I tried to make it work. I honestly did. In the spring semester, I went to the NYU financial aid office, which is set up like a bank. There's like velvet rope that snakes around. And then there are these people behind bank teller glasses that are like bulletproof with speakers in front of them. And it's super impersonal. So you line up, you go through the line, and then you're in front of one of these bank teller financial advisors. And I remember finally getting there and I was whispering because I feel like talking about your finances to a stranger is, I mean, it's so personal. So I was whispering to this lady, I was like, hey, I, uh, I need more money. I don't count. Like I, my family can't support me. I'm working a lot. I want to stay in school. Is there someone I can talk to? I was like, this is really uncomfortable. You know, like I have like two other people next to me and she goes, nope, you can submit a ticket online and we'll address you by your ticket number. At that point, I was just like, I'm just a ticket number. I'm just a ticket number. I... I'm here telling you that I am poor and I need help and you're telling me to go get a ticket. And that was when I knew. I knew I had to go. I did eventually follow that ticket and yeah, it just became another ticket number and realized I had to transfer. Nobody wants to apply to college twice. Nobody wants to do that, but I had to. It was either drop out of school or figure something else out, right? So I started looking into other places between class and work, decided that if I was going to take that leap, I'd go somewhere outside of the Northeast and just go somewhere I haven't been. Uh, Brooklyn Tech happens to be one of the largest public high schools in the country. So I wanted to go somewhere that was smaller, um, which is not that hard. It turns out that there are a lot of schools that have under 8,000 students and outside the Northeast. And I figured that if I was gonna leave, then I'd go somewhere warmer. So there weren't that many options. And the other thing I was looking for was generous financial aid. You know. That experience waiting in the bank teller line and being told to file a ticket. I went to someone who would be sympathetic to where I, where I came from, my background, and my family's, you know, their financial inability to be able to help me out with college. So I ended up settling on applying to three schools, which is already a lot to have to like put in in between classes. I applied to uh, Claremont McKenna in Southern California, Wash U, and Rice. I ended up taking back my application from Claremont McKenna because 
there's this weird realm for transfer students that I didn't realize existed, but a lot of schools treat transfer students like second-class citizens, where if they were normally going to give you financial aid as a freshman, they don't give it to you as a transfer. But you would think that someone who's transferring probably needs more help in some way. You know, like, why else would someone be transferring if they were happy in the situation they're already in? So Claremont McKenna was not need blind for transfers. And I was like, oh, fuck that. So I need, I like, I know I need to go somewhere where someone's going to be generous to me. So I, I took that out and then was between Rice and WashU. And Rice was really appealing. It was small. It was generous. They gave me a very, like, they gave me a full offer. And they even gave me extra money for each semester for me to, like, buy books pay for like lab fees and even it was like enough to take flights home like once a semester so it was super they were super understanding of where I was coming from and I didn't visit Texas I didn't visit Rice I didn't even I didn't visit Houston and I had nightmares for an entire summer about leaving NYU because in the eyes of the Asian community the Stern School of Business is really prestigious you know it's like a guaranteed path to Goldman Sachs because that's what everybody wants right and so I had nightmares about it and I left got on that flight to Texas thought that it was gonna be like horses on paved roads but is it where's rice is it in it's in Houston rice is in Houston and Houston's a big city Houston's a huge city. I was just so ignorant. Like, that stereotype of New Yorkers not leaving New York is so real and so true. And looking back on it, like, I feel like such a moron for thinking that Texas is all dirt and all horses. I I honestly don't know where I got the impression from, but I know I am not the only New Yorker who thinks that Texas is like that. Yeah. No, definitely not. So then... When you went to Rice, you stayed there, and did you? what did you study at Rice? I ended up studying visual arts and economics, so I went back to art. I Every time that I've tried to leave the art world, I end up getting pulled back into it, and I think at this point, I've accepted that it is, it is my fate. I'm somehow going to be involved in art. It may not be like my day-to-day activity, but it's, it is the, it's like the current that keeps my life moving. So I can't help it. I've just stopped resisting it now. And I mean, I am a visual journalist now. I I draw and I design day to day. And that just so happens to be, like that's the world I landed in. After school, I ended up on the West Coast, but ending up in journalism was never a career path for me. I I don't think any immigrant family wants their child to be a journalist that's just not safe it's not stable it's never gonna make you that much money and it's i mean i think of it as something for like really fancy white people's kids you know journalism is for fancy white people's kids and i feel that i ended up in this world accidentally And I didn't know that this was something that was available to me in terms of a career path, and I'm glad that I'm in it now. But my path to journalism is not straightforward. Um, I didn't go to journalism school, and um, at the time when I was 
trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I have a very mathematical and art background, um, visualizing information, data, and telling stories is probably, those are my fortes. One of the harshest critiques I ever got as an art student in college um, happened in my senior year where our, our senior instructor, he said to me, he's like, Dolly, I think you should just go into storytelling instead. And I was like, that's really offensive. I'm an artist, okay? <laughs> so it seems almost natural that I ended up in this realm of storytelling and visualizing information. Started as like a designer for a news organization. But when you're designing for a news organization, you are designing stories. You're constantly thinking about the story and how do I tell this story and how do I make this accessible to people? And it surprisingly brings together a lot of the things that I'm interested in. One of my gripes about being an artist or even like studying art in college is that it feels super self-indulgent. I don't want to be an artist that constantly expresses myself. I'm not that into expressing my story. I'm very interested in helping other people express their stories. And I maybe in like two or three generations, maybe my future offsprings, if I had any, will go and express themselves and feel free to express themselves and it'll be fantastic and they can be artists. But I don't feel like I've earned that yet. You know, I don't feel like I am at the... I just don't feel comfortable being like, oh, this is my art and it's about me. So I knew that going into art, strictly art, and being an artist just wasn't the path that I could take. It felt too selfish. Um, so I kind of like hobbled between design and illustration. Didn't really love the world of like design either, especially in the Bay Area, you're often just designing for useless startups. It was like, there can only be so many dog sitting apps that are like Uber and you can only feel semi-inspired by so many. And, you know, it's, it's not that fun to be designing for startups, but you know, I did that stuff in between and ended up in news. And since then, I mean, news is evolving in such a way where you don't have to think of it of journalism as traditional journalism you know, your capital j uh, capital j journalism is writing being on the fields with your notepad your glasses your cigarette and it doesn't have to be that way anymore people express themselves in so many different forms and there's such a great benefit in having visual journalists that you consider the same as your everyday reporter or a journalist because they think differently you know like when you are say covering when you're covering the news in a different country and you're not able to communicate with people in that country, one thing that is constant for everyone is visuals. Like you can communicate visually with anyone across the board. And visual journalism, which is the OG journalism, takes it all the way back to like the cave paintings of Lascaux. That's how you that's how people were able to pass on tradition and history and stories visually. So it seems very natural and fitting to continue. You know, I feel like journalism has taken a route where it's like lots of writing for a while. And now it's like moving back into this realm of like multimedia. Have you ever thought about how wild it is that your grandfather in China, who was publicly shamed during the Cultural Revolution, you now in America in 2016 are a journalist? I think about it all the time. 
I think that participating in free press must be the sickest immigrant fantasy in the world. It's like that's like the sickest thing you can imagine. Like, what could I? What is the most American thing I could hope for my children? Participating in free speech in a very active way, <laughs> we're getting paid to be in the free press. I, I think about it all the time. I mean, like. But you know, I also know that I'm here because my parents dreamed a bigger dream for me, and for their future offspring, and the my ability to practice like free press here is something that my grandparents could only dream of. Like the stuff I'm making at work that gets published on Facebook and YouTube, etc., Twitter, whatever. My family in China can't see any of it. They can't see it. I, if I ever want to show them something, I have to download it onto my computer and bring it to them to show them. That's weird. I'm like participating in their sickest fantasy and they can't see it. One, two, three. Yeah, it's national underground, thunderbounds when I stop the ground. Like a million elephants, a silverback, a tank. You can't stop a train. Who wants up? Don't come unprepared. I'll leave there, but when I leave there, better be a household name. Brother man telling us it ain't gonna rain. So now we sitting in a drop top soaking wet. In the silk suit, trying not to sweat. Hit some assaults without the net. But this will be the year that we won't forget. One nine nine nine. career and your job have you had conversations with him mm -hmm. because that seems like such an interesting dynamic where he had these experiences yeah. was an artist himself provided that life for his kids through a lot of hard work and now here you are a visual journalist in America yeah. it's kind of like the most badass thing in the world for him, for him. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean like yeah. he came from China where his father was publicly shamed and he was kicked out of school mm -hmm. for things that were not true or not yeah. things and then he comes and works in New York City to give his kids a better life and he was an artist and now here you are as an artist providing stories that reach thousands millions of people has he said what that means to him or how he feels about that In college, my, my parents visited me twice in Texas, and the second time was for graduation. So my dad came to my senior art show, and by then, you know, I had a, I had a few things that I was putting up, some large-scale work. They were like four-by-fives. And my dad's always been my harshest critic, and I think that's fair, you know, that was kind of difficult growing up when... You show your dad something and you want them to be proud and most American dads are like proud of their kids work and they like hanging on the fridge and whatever show everybody that comes into the house my dad would say like that's all right like you it could be better here there and there everything was all right it was okay everything could be improved and then in college where and by then my dad hasn't seen my work for some years you know because I was away at my senior show he's looking at my art and he goes he was like, he said, I think you are a better artist than I am. And I think you have more friends. And, he, and he's just saying this, looking at my artwork. And I was like, I was about to cry, one, to hear those words. And also, two, just from one artist to another, when you are looking at someone's 
brushstrokes, like the gesture of their body and their hand, and you can make a deduction about their personality. I mean, it's one. It speaks such validation to how much of an artist he is. You know, he can tell. And I asked him, I was like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, "Well, I think you've you've really grown into becoming an artist, and you have much stronger." Gestures, your brush, your like strokes are much stronger than mine and less detailed. He said, though your work is more abstract, like it's not super abstract, but it was just broader strokes, bigger lines, whereas he's more of like a shorter line, finer line person. And from that, he was like, I think that you have more friends than I do. I was like, that's fucking, that's crazy. That's crazy. And that was before I and I went into the world of journalism. Since my dad doesn't speak English, I show him my work, but he he can't understand what's happening in the videos and stuff. I remember showing him my piece on this woman's experience in solitary confinement, and I briefed him on it. I said, "This is a story from a woman who spent time in jail and was locked into a room by herself." You know, and I play him the video, and. He is, he's so impressed and moved by it that I think that he just, he never, he could never imagine that the world of art could take place, one, in the digital sphere, right? He's not, he's not just like, I'm not even saying he's impressed by like the fact that I could draw, you know, by now he knows that I can draw, you know, that's like not something that I need to prove anymore, but he's impressed that art has taken this visual format. He's impressed that art can be shared in such a way that it can reach a lot of people, because he doesn't. I mean, in the world of art that he grew up in and that he told me was the reality was that you're gonna be an artist, you're gonna sit in Union Square and you're gonna draw portraits of people, ugly caricatures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You make ten dollars a pop, and it's never gonna happen. He just never thought that it could just be disseminated in this way, and I think that he really likes that I've taken this this talent. I mean, talent is talent is debatable. Everything can be learned through practice. And if you want to be a good draftsman, a good artist, you do it every day. You do it until you get it, and you will get it if you commit to it. So, this skill essentially that my dad taught me that I continue to practice, you know, every now and then with his supervision. Is now being translated into this like new realm. It's like it goes. It's beyond paper. He, I think that he. Well, I hope that he does see it in some ways, like bringing it full circle to like a world that he didn't feel like was attainable for him, and he didn't even think was attainable for me. But you know, things move faster than our imaginations sometimes. Here's the thing about journalism: it's because it is a little bit of a one percent industry. I constantly feel like an outsider, and I constantly feel like I accidentally ended up here. And one day someone's gonna figure it out that I don't belong. But for as long as I can manage to be here and like hold my ground before someone removes me, I want to be able to tell the stories of my people. You know, like my family. The history of the place where they came from, why it's so important for me to be in media, 
you know, to be a voice in media, to be contributing to what the American mind is consuming. It's so important. And I, it didn't, I didn't realize it was so important to me until like getting to this point. And it starts to like come together when I realize that generations before me, people didn't have a voice and were not able to express themselves and be taken seriously. Otherwise you die. And now it can happen. Like all the stories, all the, both good and bad, right? The suffering and also just like the beauty of the country that they came from that can all be told now in new media, in digital media. And there aren't that many Asian American voices in media, um, especially from women. And even when there are, there aren't that many like first generation people in media who come from backgrounds that are not nearly as, not from like from families that are not nearly as well off. And I think that's the human element I was talking about earlier to be able to bring humanity back into storytelling and like the global narrative. I mean, right now, when we're scared of something, we want to dehumanize it mm -hmm. so that we are able to confront that fear in some way. And it's, and I think it's, it's the easy way out, right? And that's why I kind of look towards my parents sometimes even for like stories. I think that they are, I mean, they're Americans. They've lived here for longer than I've existed. They've been here for what, 30 years, if not more. They love this country. When I ask them if they would ever go back, they don't, they go back all the time every year, but they don't want to live there. And they have like a very balanced view of the two places and they understand the tension. Little did he know. Little did he know. He was an artist in New York creating the apparatus for the sewing machines. And now here you are as an artist with a lot of his influence and kind mm -hmm. of guidance creating art for the digital age being disseminated across the world in these stories that otherwise wouldn't be given that voice. Yeah. I, I think that he wishes he could be a part of it. I wish he, he is. could too. He is a part of it. He is a part of it. He, what he, could be, I, I bet it's almost better if it's your <laughs> child than yourself. Think about that. Yeah. I feel like in journalism, how I want to be able to contribute in the long run is to bridge this gap. If you had a piece of advice to offer to someone else or a younger version of yourself, what would the advice be? I didn't realize that this was so important or at least important to me. And I think it would be helpful for other people as well. But especially for younger women and professional women or women who are about to enter the working world, it's good to keep older women um, on your side and to consult them and ask them for mentorship. And I don't even mean older, like a lot older, like five, ten years. It makes a huge difference when you're young and someone has five years of experience on you. Because someone who has five to ten experiences, uh, years of experience on you, they are still kind of in the same place that you are, but with a few more tricks than you have. And women need to look out for each other. And being like, it's really difficult in this age to be a young professional woman. There are a lot of things you have to think about, like hair politics. Should I keep my hair short 
What's going to happen if I grow my hair out? Will people take me less seriously? Can I wear this shirt? Should I wear a bra under this shirt? What's wrong with not wearing a bra? Men don't wear bras. Can I wear these jeans? Can I even wear jeans? Are these jeans too tight? Should I wear heels? Will these make my legs look short? There's so many things. It's like, that's even, that's just one aspect. Just like dressing yourself. Or like, what do you do if, you know, you have some issue with a coworker or a manager and I feel like, I wish the younger version of me or like, you know, so even I, I think about my, my little cousins all the time. I want them to be able to like ask me questions whenever they want about anything, you know, seek out a mentor, seek out many mentors. And for younger women, I think it's great to seek out specifically female mentors, a little bit older, bit more experience than you have and ask as many questions as possible. Ask constantly, you know, ask them what they're doing ask them about what you're doing and they will give you their two cents you take it for what it's worth nobody's word is the word of god and you know you learn from it you add it to your repertoire of knowledge and you work off of that and young like women will look out for each other they always do and when an opportunity comes about like someone will have you in mind it's always good to have that connection because then you'll always have someone to guide you along. And at some point, you're going to have so many questions and you're going to want somebody who's going to be able to answer them, who is, who has been in your shoes before in terms of being like a woman entering the workforce. If you had to title your autobiography, <laughs> what, what would the title be? Oh, gosh. If there's ever an autobiography about me, or a biography about me, I don't know if I could possibly write a biography about myself. Yeah, yeah, just hope, a biography. I hope that there's plenty of humor and tears and satire and like there are degree. There are a lot of things that are really serious in my life and in my beliefs, but I hope I like to funnel it all into happy, creative energy, effective, but fun energy. Perfect. <laughs> well, this has been great. Yeah. I've been speaking with Dolly Lee. She is a visual journalist at AJ Plus. You can see her work at dollylee.com. Dollylee.com. She is very talented, and I have enjoyed the work that I've seen of yours so far, and I look forward Thank to you. seeing more in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Is now a good time is Bill Ehrlich, Mike Benz, Shane Callahan, Chloe List, and Ryan Lipkin. This is Bill Ehrlich. Is now a good time. Out, 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 out. You gotta